Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. On this episode, we welcome back to the show NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory research astronomer Varajan Gorgian to discuss the amazing pictures just released by NASA from the James Webb Space Telescope. If you haven't taken a look at these yet, they are awesome. I encourage you to do so. Go to nasa.gov forward slash web first images. That's nasa.gov forward slash web first images. Mr. Gorgian's here to talk about these pictures and what they will mean for the scientific study of our universe moving forward. Welcome back to the show, Varjan. Oh, I'm very happy to be back. All right. Well, last time you were on the show, we were both geeking out about the possibilities of the James Webb Space Telescope, which was launched in December of last year. Well, now they're here. The first pictures have been released and they're amazing and they're awesome. And everybody should go look at them at nasa.gov forward slash web first images. But before we get to that, could you just give our listeners a quick reminder of what makes this telescope so special and what its primary mission is? Uh, So, yeah, this is uh, a real big step forward uh, in terms of telescopes in space because the the thing about telescopes that has been the main thing that changes over time is how big they are and that's the critical thing about any telescope because the larger your originally was lenses but then it was too difficult to make lenses bigger and bigger and then eventually get we got to mirror telescopes where you're using mirrors to collect light and that's the job of a telescope is to collect more light it's no different than your eyes your pupils when you want to collect more light, get bigger as <laughs> to let more light in. But if there's too much light, of course, they contract. But that's not this situation with telescopes. You want bigger and bigger apertures or collecting areas so that you're getting more light. And so um, the biggest advance on the James Webb T- Space Telescope primarily is that it has a huge mirror. It's about six and a half meters across. Uh, it's, that's, but it's very hard to fashion that big mirror, a mirror that big. Uh, but even if we can still do that, but then launching a mirror that big becomes very difficult because then it's this very big thing that you're trying to stick on top of a rocket. Um, and so that's why it's done in this segmented shape. If you look at the images, these hexagons and so that it was also foldable so that, you know, once it's open, it's this very big mirror and big, bigger mirrors give you first and foremost, more light collecting power. But they also give you better resolution. That is, you can pick out finer detail with a bigger mirror than you can with a smaller mirror. So, pushing that technology forward in the infrared, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope gives us better images in terms of resolution than uh, there's a small overlap in the kind of light, the wavelengths of light that it uh, collects and Hubble collected. It is often time cited as the successor to Hubble. It's actually a successor to another NASA observatory, the Spitzer Space Telescope. And that uh, telescope has a lot more wavelength overlap with the James Webb. And that's the critical thing is that it's primarily an infrared telescope. 
there's a few of the wavelengths that our eyes can see that it can pick up, but primarily it is doing wavelengths longer than our eyes can see, in particular because that provides a great advantage in both studying things that are enshrouded in dust, which is where young stars form, uh, and often our black holes are enshrouded uh, at the centers of galaxies behind dust, uh, but the infrared penetrates that. But more importantly, and the primary mission which you asked about is, as the universe is expanding, the light that's emitted is Doppler shifted, much like the way the sound changes for a siren coming towards you. But if something is going away from you, the sound waves are getting longer and longer. That's why the pitch goes lower. Same with light. As the universe is expanding, the wavelengths get longer and longer. The light, therefore, is actually being shifted into the infrared. So, the primary mission of the James Webb Space Telescope, but certainly by no means the only one, was to see these very, very early galaxies earliest star formation uh, right after the Big Bang. And so, a, a lot of that light has been shifted into the infrared. So, now you have a bigger collecting area so that you can look at very faint things because there's very little light coming to us from them. But that light that's coming to us is actually in the infrared. So, it's optimized to be an infrared telescope. This quote is actually from NASA. Quote, light from these galaxies took billions of years to reach us. We are looking back in time to within a billion years after the Big Bang, when viewing the youngest galaxies in this field, end quote. So, I guess it's a bit like uh, time travel, right? Not a bit like, it's exactly like time travel. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing, is that's the way the universe works because the light takes a finite amount of time to go from one point to another. So, we see the moon as it was about three seconds ago because that's about the light travel time from the moon to the earth, um, if I remember right. Uh, but then the most, uh, our sun is about eight light minutes away. So, we see the sun as it was eight minutes ago, not as it is right now, but light has to leave the surface of the sun, travel through space, come to us and hit our, you know, solar telescopes, don't look at the sun directly, uh, but or, you know, hits everything around us, lights up our environment and that light took eight minutes to get here. So, the further you go, the longer the light has, has taken for it to travel to us, which means you're seeing it as it was before. And therefore, so these galaxies are no longer in this form as we are seeing them now. But as they were forming in these very early stages, that light left. But as the distance between us and them grew, it took light long in this long time to get to us and it got redshifted and therefore is now more in the infrared. But it is truly an image of those galaxies back in time. So, it is exactly time travel. So, telescopes are time machines. So, I'm not an astronomer. You're a research astronomer at the yeah. Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, but I was super excited that these pictures were coming out. So, let's put ourselves in Varjan's uh, shoes for a moment. Was Sunday night like uh, Christmas for you? Did you have the pictures earlier than us? Like, how did it feel in the lead up to these things coming? No, out? no, no. They they had these pictures under wraps, you know, on a really, really tight lock and key. Nobody knew. There's very few people who knew what they were going to be. Uh, I was not quite Christmas morning, but uh, to some extent, because you don't know uh, at all what gifts you're going to get on Christmas. Here, we knew what they were. We just didn't know how good they were going to be. We knew they were going to be good. And everybody was hoping that, you know, and what I did know is all my friends who are working on the James Webb Telescope, Space Telescope, uh, and I know many of them, 
all of them were very happy. There was nothing that was coming out from them that was indicating angst or uh, or anything like that. So I was uh, they I couldn't I contain a, themselves in talking to yeah, you. Yeah, nothing was leaked, but I could tell just based on their demeanor that they were happy, which was which made me happy because they've been working on this for years and years and years of their careers. And so it was what uh, tipped it off? The jumping up and down. What was the thing that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite jumping up and down, but lots of smiles. And, yeah, you know, how's yeah, it going? Yeah. And they didn't go, and they're like, "Oh, it's okay," you know, or "It's fine." No, no, no. It was always, "Yep, yeah, you'll see," or you know, "Yeah, yeah, you'll see." Don't worry, you'll see. You know, it's going good. Yeah, or it's, yeah. when they were saying, "Okay," they had a big smile on their face. <laughs> so yeah, but again, nothing was revealed. You know, yeah, I got they, you. they they did a very good job of really, you know. Uh, packaging them and then you know initially we had the release on uh, the surprise release on monday of the deep field which mm-hmm. was this uh, image of uh, this particular cluster of galaxies that uh, is so massive that it has it's, it's acting like a lens and bringing out images of galaxies behind it basically magnifying those and in fact distorting them and you have these very weird shaped galaxies but you know they're very early galaxies and it's not that they have weird shapes it's just that their images have been distorted but they've also been magnified in the sense that as their brightness has been increased so it's it's it, the universe in this case is helping us see fainter things behind these galaxy clusters which are lensing them um so yeah it's uh, so we were all very excited you know when that image any viewing out, parties or there were some anything? viewing parties certainly yeah. on tuesday there were viewing parties at jpl and all the different places uh, so people were gathering there and, uh, as the images came up, the first one of course was the deep field. Um, and again, people had already seen it, but we got more explanations. And the critical thing that astronomers like is, isn't just the pretty pictures is the spectra, which is the ability to spread the light into its component parts, the, you know, taking white light and making it into a rainbow. That's effectively what we're doing. And, you know, except we're doing it in the infrared instead of the optical and the, there are every element has a characteristic signature in that spectrum in the, in that light either in absorption in dark uh, parts of it or in emission where there are these you know, peaks of extra light that are coming from the elements that are making these up and these were amazing spectra the quality of them and this is what really is, is getting us excited is that within a relatively short amount of time the amount of um, information that we were getting about these very, very distant and dim galaxies was so good. And this was just like, it, it was, and this was what it was designed to do. But then once it achieved that goal was amazing to see that, you know, within that deep field was, was 12 hours to take the image. And within, you know, the spectra were, I don't know exactly how long, but not very long. And again, there were high quality spectra. You could instantly take, pick out the oxygen emission and very, uh, hydrogen emission and so on uh, very, very easily. Uh, and, you know, the uh, Hubble has taken very, very deep fields and it's, uh, it's always been um, hundreds of hours over weeks to accumulate that data. And this was done in hours and we were much better already than Hubble. Again, Hubble was a two, it was not a put down of Hubble. Hubble was a two and a half meter mirror. We're having a six and a half meter mirror. So it's not even a linear change because it's the area of the mirror. So it's a, the difference in the radius squared. So yeah, it's been an amazing, um, you know, when we were looking at it, we could instantly tell everything was working and just everybody's heart just, hearts just filled with joy. 
uh, at seeing those images. <laughs> so it was a confirmation that yeah, this is this is gonna this is gonna work well. Yeah, 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 yeah. and and not not just like as hoped, but it was definitely exceeding some of those hopes even that is you know oh, wow. everything every machine and this is a machine like anything else is going to have glitches and it has glitches and so on and so forth but you're always sort of trying to damp down your expectations because every machine will have some difficulties and usually you just go and fix it you know you tweak mm-hmm. this you turn that screw you reconnect that wire you unplug it and replug it in and you know it's a it's all you know doable when you're on the ground, but this had to work perfectly from the get-go. There's no screw that you can turn or tighten or loosen after the fact. So to see how well it was doing based on all of the things that they had already decided beforehand. Now there's certain things you can still tweak from here, but it's not the same as you know having that access you know where you can do it yourself. You know? mm-hmm. So that was that's really what it is. Is that it worked and it worked as well as if not better than pretty people had hoped. We're going to get back to these softball questions in a moment, but let me ask you one really hard science question. You ready? Sure. Go ahead. How tired is your wife of hearing about the James Webb telescope? (laughs) (laughs) I I have been, you know, trying to limit it, but my wife is very excited. She's not a scientist, but she sat there with me and watched the images come up on the NASA feed. And, uh, and she's also gotten to know some of the people who are doing the presenting because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Michelle Fowler used to work here uh, on the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Spitzer Science Center before she moved on to Goddard. And she was the main host of that. So, it's a friend of ours who is doing this. So, there's, so in, in some ways, it's uh, part of the family now. So, it's, she's mm-hmm. not as tired, I think, as you would think. I'm sure she's somewhat tired, but not, not as much. Because this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that happens in that it's, this is not just um, our job, but these are the that, people that we work with and people who move on. But these are our friends and our sort of extended family. So, we're always you know, all interested in it, even if we're not the ones who are doing that, uh, that work. So, let's talk about some of these specific uh, pictures here. And uh, if you're listening at home, you can maybe press pause and pull them up. NASA has them on their website. Um, in fact, if you go to uh, nasa.gov forward slash web first images, you can actually find them. Um, but anyhow, so let's talk about a few of them. Let's talk about this deep field picture only because it was the first one that was released, yeah. as you said, on uh, Monday, July 11th. Mm-hmm. President Biden revealed it at the White House. And um First, I'll read this quote from NASA, and then I'll ask you just for your feedback. So, NASA says, thousands of galaxies, including the faintest objects ever observed in the infrared, have appeared in Webb's view for the first time. This slice of the vast universe covers a patch of sky approximately the size of a grain of sand held out at arm's length by someone on the ground. Fascinating. So, when I look at this picture, it's just awe-inspiring at the size of the universe (laughs) when I read that quote. And thinking about my place in it, but as an astronomer, just I guess, what was your sort of geeked out reaction? But also, what are some of the things that we can learn from this type of data? Well, the the first and foremost thing that you learn, uh, just look at it, and as an astronomer, and even as a non-astronomer, is that there's almost no empty patches in this image. There's no large black spots everywhere. You look at it, there's a little fuzzy patch, which is a galaxy, which is you know somewhere between us and this very early period in the universe. If you look at the image and you know there's various uh, analyses of it, it shows you sort of what are these you know the deepest and furthest um, galaxy that's in there. But the critical thing is in this 
you know, it's a long exposure. And that's what we call when we're talking about a deep image is it means that it um, looks for is the exposure was long enough to pick up a lot of very faint things. So when we say you go deeper, that means you're going long enough in your exposure times to pick out even fainter things. So that's why this is called a deep image. But that's the thing. It's relatively speaking, you know, what, what we call wall clock time or, you know, your watch time, 12 hours is not that much for something that's this deep. So this was like, wow, very, in a relatively short amount of time, we're picking out galaxies that we hadn't been able to pick up with, you know, telescopes beforehand. So at, at these wavelengths, amazing. So that's the first thing that, you know, that just struck me was just everything. It's just full, 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 full. Yeah. And then the other thing of it is that, um, you don't need to squint to see the gravitational lensing. The distortion of the galaxies is so obvious that these very far background galaxies that are behind this cluster of these white fuzzy blobs, those are galaxies that are closer to us, about four and a half billion light years away. Behind them are these galaxies and the mass of that cluster is distorting and bending that light, but then you don't have to sort of re go there with a magnifying glass to pick out which ones are the distorted. And the, it's just there. It's just so obviously there. And these galaxies are just, you know, the, the arcs that they have created, you can definitely see as if there is a piece of glass that's, <laughs> that's sort of distorting your view behind them. So, that was the other thing. And finally, I think it's just so pretty. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that instantly... It's that's coming. what I get. That's what Lawrence Eppard gets from it. It's very <laughs> no, it beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful <laughs> image, but it's a beautiful image that it's not uh, somebody's concept. This is the universe. This is our home. This is where we live. And it's gorgeous. Let, let's move on. So, from the deep field, let's go to the Carina Nebula or the Cosmic Cliffs. This is just, again, I know nothing about the scientific value of this. My first impression is, holy moly, looks like a mountain range on a moonlit night is absolutely gorgeous. Um, tell us, what are what is a nebula and uh, what pops out at you in this picture? Yeah. The, uh, so, nebula is an old, uh, I believe, Greek word, which just means cloud or so, and that's why it was applied to, by early astronomers, to things in the sky that looked cloud-like, that were not clouds, obviously, in our atmosphere, but it was just these cloudy things, and they didn't know what they were. Um, some of these cloudy things turned out to be what, are, what we now call star-forming regions that are, you know, because what we learned was that stars form these, from these clouds of gas and dust, and parts of those large clouds start condensing, at the, the become self-gravitating. So, the mass starts getting concentrated, and so a concentrated mass attracts more mass, and so then they would concentrate more, and so on and so forth. And at the core of it is where you get a star. You get enough gas that's compressed and becomes hot enough to start nuclear fusion, so you start converting hydrogen into helium, and that's what powers a star, and so that you have a star that's born. And so, we started studying these clouds of gas and dust, but one of the problems is that in the regions where, which is the most interesting, where these stars are actually forming, it's the densest regions. Therefore, in the optical light, which we used to use uh, mostly, uh, we couldn't see what was going on there. But in infrared, you can actually penetrate through. And that's why it, the, it's not a solid. It, actually, if you look in the, in the optical, it's actually much darker and it's harder to see through all of those clouds. 
but you know, in the infrared, we can see it, and some of those young stars are a part of that, uh, are part of those cliffs. But what's interesting is that the reason you even have these cliffs is above in that sort of bluish region. You can even almost imagine what's happening is that these young stars are formed, and once they form, they actually start blowing away the cocoon of gas and dust that they were born from. And so that hot, you know, wind, as it were, and it's, and it's coming from the stars, is now impacting and pushing and plowing into the top of the cliffs, as it were. And so, that's, in fact, pushing and condensing and starting other stars put, uh, to form. But that's the thing. And so, this is the process of uh, star birth, which happens in these nebulae, in these clouds of gas and dust. And now, we can penetrate in them, see them, but then also see the consequences of other stars which have already formed, how they're impacting and they're condensing and pushing uh, uh, into this uh, cloud in, in the, the sort of larger Carina Nebula. And this is where actually it's a very good thing to sort of point out why, uh, for example, Hubble, although there are certain capabilities that it has that obviously the previous telescopes couldn't provide, but then in the optical light, we need the Hubble data <laughs> to compare it to other wavelengths of light to help us learn more. And then Spitzer, Spitzer, although worked at the same wavelengths, uh, it had a smaller mirror, so it doesn't have the resolution, but it actually could cover much larger areas. So, Spitzer is giving you the context um, as, while James Webb is concentrating and zooming in on much more details in, in, in these uh, areas that we're interested in. So, these are all, I mean, Spitzer is no longer functioning, but all the data is still there. Um, and so, also, there's another smaller uh, mission called the Whitefield Infrared Survey Explorer that your listeners might want to look up as well. So, that did an entire all-sky survey, so it was even lower resolution. So, now we have all these telescopes feeding into each other. One is the full sky. Spitzer is, you know, zooming in and giving you one particular region and then Jim's web zooms in even further and gives you much more detail. Uh, and again, it's all of this is still should not detract from just the sheer beauty of it because mm -hmm. fundamentally, um, it's great to study all of the things and all the details, and I'm very looking forward to uh, what results we get. But at the same time, it does remind us, much like you know, you know, botanists study flowers, and flowers are beautiful, and it takes nothing away from them. And oftentimes, even if you don't understand the details of the botany, hey, flowers are gorgeous; they make our lives better <laughs> in many ways, uh, mark our birthdays and anniversaries. And, and this is the case here. It's, uh, we live in a beautiful universe, and it's always good to step back and take a moment and say, yes, this is all very important science, but it also that should not take it from anybody's you know, sense of beauty that exists in our universe. Now, this message is just for our listeners. I'm actually, I'm hoping Varjan's not listening right now. <laughs> I bring him on and I trick him into thinking we're going to talk about science and then he gives me great philosophy. So, this is good. <laughs> All right. So, let's move on to Stefan's quintet. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, I didn't know this when I was reading up about this, uh, that this was featured in the film, It's a Wonderful Life, which I love. A uh, little lower resolution in that movie. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and only in the optical. That was an only, uh, not a very deep image, as it were, in the sense, not in philosophy, but in terms of, uh, again, the telescopes at the time were not as sensitive and particularly taking it from the ground. But yes, yeah, so for those who don't know, the um, uh, if you have, have seen It's a Wonderful Life, it starts off with a conversation between uh, essentially God and his angels, but then they're represented as these glowy galaxies talking to each other in Stefan's quintet. Um, uh, or, and then um, what's a side note again, just so 
It's a Wonderful Life was directed by Frank Capra. Frank Capra got his undergraduate degree not in film. He got he went to Caltech and majored in chemistry. That so, explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you might think that perhaps that is what him, fed him some in, connection. In some yeah. connection there that he picked something scientific to be to be a part of the movie. So by, obviously, by the time he's making "It's a Wonderful Life," it's it's many years since he was he'd finished his undergraduate degree. But yeah, so he did have a very technical and scientific training to begin with, and thankfully he switched to movies because he's one of our greatest directors of all time. <laughs> Well, and you know, the deep field I realize has thousands of galaxies in it and should be the most impressive to me. For some reason, this one hit me like a ton of bricks in terms of like the size of the universe. I guess just because seeing all those galaxies so close together in such high definition. And in fact, I was reading up uh, on on James Webb's site, uh, I guess the leftmost galaxy, uh, NGC 7320, is actually 40 million light years from Earth, while the other four are about 290 million light years away, which is fascinating. Yeah. So, it's it, this is a, a coincidence. So, you have these multiple galaxies that are further away and you can see they're interacting. The, the, those filaments are really because they're all in collision. But then there's this one seems like it's so pristine. It's not interacting. Well, the reason it's not interacting with them is because it's way in the foreground. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it just happens to be in, in the line of sight. But still, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, but also, this is one of the... Um, in those cases where, you know, if you look up and at clouds, they make shapes. And, and in this case, if you look at it, there's a happy face looking back at us. There's, <laughs> there's sort of two eyes and uh, as one of the filaments makes a smile. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, to me, first of all, again, we're taking an image of Stefan's quintet. And then we're getting, again, all these background galaxies, the sensitivity. So, I, there's no real large black space around them at all because the sensitivity is so high. But then partly the image was taken because what we're interested in is not only the galaxies, the brighter parts of the galaxies themselves, but as they're in their collisional dance, because things don't just, you know, this is not an automobile collision where two things hit each other. And this is gases so and gravitational interactions. So, it swings out and things get flung out and then re, uh, recombine. And so, what people wanted to see are those spiral arms, the distorted spiral arms, the gas and dust and stars that have been flung out. And so, you can see it so much better than in any other image previously. And so, those are the fainter things and the more uh, what we call low surface brightness things. But here, they're, they're coming out amazingly and you can tell how these things are, you know, lashing into each other and, and, and eventually they're all going to merge a long time from now. But it is just this amazing thing that um, these are called galactic mergers. And so, that's what's definitely going to happen is these galaxies will combine and we can see sort of the, they're in the process. So, we were taking uh, a picture in the middle of the collision at this point. That's crazy. And uh, so, in terms of scientific value of this, um, I, I read on, on NASA's site, it says that, that it's uh, very useful for studying the processes fundamental to all galaxies. Is that really sort of understanding galaxies? Yeah. And the, the critical part is, uh, and if you look at the top galaxy, uh, it looks like it has a very bright star at its center, sort of very reddish looking star at the center. That's not a star. That's actually accretion or accumulation of gas onto a supermassive black hole at the center of that galaxy. So, we're seeing all this gas that's being disturbed and forced or basically um, 
directed into the supermassive black hole at a higher rate than it would be otherwise. And the way we see galaxies forming and the way we think galaxies evolve is this connection of galaxies merging, first of all, but then also there most more often than not, and it seems like it in every galaxy, there seems to be a supermassive black hole out of their centers. And so there's accretion of this gas that's been disturbed because of this merger to um, feed that supermassive black hole. And then the black that generates energy and in some ways actually stops some of that gas from accumulating. So it basically pushes back. So this merging gas accumulation, new stars forming and, you know, in a bigger galaxy than it was before the merger, you know, but at the same time, it's somehow regulated, we don't know exactly how, by the supermassive black hole, which then the supermassive black holes also have to merge and then disturb the inner parts of the galaxy. So, all of this has to be put together in how we understand how galaxies form. And so, our Milky Way, the nearby Andromeda galaxy, and so on, are clearly most likely have gone through some aspects of this. More evolved galaxies have gone through many generations of this. So, for us to understand how we get from those very early stars in the deep field to the galaxies that we see in Stefan's Quintet to the galaxies that we have today, that's the thing. But you can, because we're looking with a time machine, you can say, oh, what did it look like 13 billion years ago, 10 mm -hmm. billion years ago, 8 billion years ago? And you're, you're not seeing the same galaxies. But what you're seeing is snapshots of the, you know, what were galaxies doing at that time, and then you can connect the dots from those different time spans. And that's why the time machine aspect of, of telescopes really is a way of studying the universe as it evolves. So, it's not just a snapshot at a particular time. We can take snapshots at throughout the age of the universe. And this is a little bit like, you know, uh, looking at a photo album, you know, your, you have your baby pictures and so on, except we're not looking at your baby pictures. We're saying, how do humans grow? You have a whole bunch of albums of baby pictures, and then you have another set of albums of toddler pictures, not of the same kids. And then you have a whole bunch of albums of, you know, kids and then preteens and then and so on. It's not all the same kids, but if you have all those pictures, you can get a general sense of how babies grow up to be toddlers, to become preteens, to become teenagers, to become adults. So, that's sort of what we're doing here in terms of all of these different steps in the history of the universe that we're imaging. Yeah, and you scientists, uh, you use these numbers that, and, and these concepts that if I try to think about them, it's like a short-circuiting computer and I just sort of <laughs> go limp. I read that uh, this black hole that you're, you're uh, referencing, the supermassive black hole um, in NGC 7319, is 24 million times the mass of the sun. Here's the part where I black out and yeah. pass out. And you have to explain. Like, I can't even fathom that amount of mass. But that's the thing. Is there are even more massive uh, supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies? And one of the reasons we think that they had uh, to come from these galaxy mergers is it's very hard then to double that mass just by mm. regular slow accretion of gas onto it. So, then these mergers have to be so that you're merging a 24 million solar mass black hole with a may maybe 20 million solar mass black hole. And eventually, we do have black holes that we've seen that are a billion times the mass of the sun. I can't. <laughs> We're going to have to move on. Okay, no, I, that's can't fine, even, that's fine. I can't even fathom that. <laughs> Need a drink. All right. So, uh, let's see. So, let's move on. This one I thought you'd find um, interesting to talk about. I know you found it interesting to see. 
but uh, is it Wasp 96B? Is that right. how you say yeah. that? Yeah. So here's the reason why I thought you'd find it interesting is because uh, last time we talked, I said, what, uh, what's one of the things you're most hopeful about or you could predict could happen in your lifetime? And you said, discovering an Earth-like planet. Uh, not that they did that here, yeah. um, but in terms of like what this could suggest the web could do, um, they found, let's see, signatures and evidence of water, of clouds and haze. Is this the kind of work that you're hoping can be now utilized elsewhere? Absolutely. So again, what uh, this planet we already knew it existed. It was found by what's called the transit technique. That is, uh, this planet orbits its star, and then in its orbit, actually, the or- orbit, the alignment of its orbit with its star is such that it blocks its star as it passes in front of it. And so, if it has an atmosphere, then as it goes in front of the star, then some of the starlight that's passing through the atmosphere of the planet, the the planet blocks the starlight entirely, except if it has an atmosphere, then some of that starlight passes through the atmosphere of the planet and gets absorbed based on the chemical structure of the atmosphere. And so, that's what James Webb partly was designed to do, to to look at these exoplanets as they're traversing in front of their uh, host star and then tell us what the chemistry is. And that's the critical thing. Uh, This is a you know, hot, sort of a hot Jupiter kind of planet. It's a very hot planet, gashy, gassy planet, orbits very close to its star. But what we do hope that at some point with other techniques, we find Earth-like planets, but then we can use the James Webb Space Telescope if that, if that Earth-like planet is transiting in front of its host star to get a spectrum of the atmosphere. And then that can tell us potentially uh, whether there's life on that planet. Because it, the atmosphere of our planet, if somebody takes a spectrum of it, again, you don't have to image it, you don't have to see it. All you need to do is just get a spectrum that is, you know, light passing through the atmosphere and how the chemicals and things that are in the atmosphere absorb uh, the light that's passing through it. And those set of absorptions, which is what you see in the James Webb image, very clearly in this case indicate water vapor. But the kind of water vapor at the different wavelengths also tells you that it's not exactly the depth of absorption that you would expect, so that there's some haze there. Uh, ideally, again, what we hope in the future for not a planet like this, although we, studying these kinds of planets really gets a sense of how do planets form and how their atmospheres evolve. But for us, I think the main thing is if we want an Earth-like planet, what we would be looking for is what's called non-equilibrium chemistry. That is, at some point, you know, if there's life somewhere, but certainly on Earth, we have a lot of oxygen in our atmosphere. Now, oxygen is not a rare element and, you know, it's all over the place in the universe, but oxygen is very reactive. It doesn't like being by itself. That's why it becomes carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, H2O, you know, it, it, it combines with other things very readily. So, to have a huge amount of oxygen, while there are other things that it can react with, it tells you, oh, this has to be replenished. If you left on its own, oxygen will react and it's like next to iron, it'll rust it and so on. It, it's, it oxidizes. That's what it does. Uh, so, you need to be replenishing it on a regular basis and that sort of gives you a sense like as on Earth, you have to you know, have something that's creating it. And in this case, obviously, primarily it's plankton in the ocean, some in the forests and so on. So, that's the critical thing that tells you that there may be life there. As you were giving your explanation, uh, I was thinking of some astronomer billions of years, light years away from us, who's using their own uh, telescope to look at the Earth and saying, 
I got these new observations, but uh, there's a lot more CO2 in the atmosphere than there was previously. There can't possibly be life on that planet anymore. It's warming <laughs> up too much. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, but there. that'll be that'll be a question that they'll have to grapple with. It's like, yeah, this over the past hundred years, the amount of CO2 has gone up pretty fast. As little, you know, lots of volcanoes going off. I suppose that could be it. Volcanoes put out, you know, or something. Very volcanic. Uh, yeah, very volcanic. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. I look at other wavelengths. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of mass volcanism. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and they'll be really disappointed when they find out it was oh they're making nikes they're making nike <laughs> shoes that's okay darn <laughs> they won't be as happy as you guys were with the james webb pictures all right so um before we wrap up here anything about the uh southern ring nebula picture that you want to point out or that pops oh, out at you oh absolutely i mean so that's that's the end point of our sun. Our sun, you know, will not go supernova. It won't explode. Most stars are not massive enough to go through that explosive end uh, that we call supernovas. Um, it will go through this planetary nebulae phase. Again, this was misnamed a planetary nebula because it has nothing to do with planets, but it's a nebula. It was one of the nebulas that people were looking at and didn't know what they were, but it's the end state of our sun. And so, um, as it, as it, depletes its fuel at the center, it actually will puff up and then it'll send out multiple of its layers outward. And so, this is sort of the other end of the uh, line. You know, we're talking about the beginning and how things evolve, then how do stars die? And this is a really uh, great insight because in particular, we're seeing, again, two sets of different wavelengths. So, there are two images. One is at the shorter infrared wavelengths that gives you one kind of information. Um, and then the other one has a longer inferred wavelengths. Now, in particular, in the longer one, it is easier to pick out that it's actually a binary star system. So, it has a companion, which is cool. And so, cooler uh, th things tend to be redder. And so, and that's how it's color coded. But really, the peak emission of that companion is far more in the in longer infrared wavelengths. So, uh, we can certainly pick that out in this case of the, the binary system. But really, this is uh, showing you the entire wavelength range uh, that James Webb can bring on studying any phenomenon, but in particular here, the death of a star like our sun. And it's just a breathtaking picture. I mean, for any listeners out there who haven't gone and taken a look at these pictures, they're absolutely beautiful. I love hearing the possible, you know, the, the scientific revelations that could come from these things, but just as an uneducated uh, viewer of them, they're absolutely breathtaking. Uh, so, uh, two questions, quick questions before you go. Uh, number one uh, are you still pretty confident that in your lifetime, James Webb or some other telescope is going to find an Earth-like planet? An Earth-like planet? Yeah, I think it's certainly Earth-sized planet, rocky at a distance from its star. That is, you know, the temperatures are such that you can have liquid water. Yeah, I'm fairly certain that, that within my lifetime, within the next 20 years, we're going to do that at, at least. And, and not 20, certainly 30 years. And I'm hoping to live that long at least. And uh, what else can we expect from James Webb going forward? So, we got these pictures. What else is on the horizon? Well, I think, um, and, and appropriately so, you want to show that your telescope is working and imaging is a very quick way of doing it. But really, the spectroscopy, the sort of hard numbers um, kind of science with Webb clearly is going to be the, the, the dominant result. Uh, again, we're going to absolutely see more spectacular images. Um, but as the spectrographs are put more and more into use by astronomers, I think those are the ones where we're going to get a lot of quantitative results about these very far away galaxies or nearby 
dying stars and so on, because just the sensitivity and the quality of the data is so high and you can do so much so quickly. So I think we're going to get an enormous number of great quantitative results um, from web uh, in, in the very near future. How quickly might those types of analyses pop up in academic journals, you know, working papers, those sorts of things? I, I'd say it's it. First ones are usually about a year after um, mm-hmm. the data has got, been gotten. Now, there's some that will be, you know, probably earlier uh, for sure. If there's a much very spectacular, obvious result where, you know, yeah. it goes through the refereeing process fairly quickly, but saying, hey, look, we didn't know this was here before. We looked at a, you know, with a better telescope with more sensitivity, this element is here or this element's ratio against this element is something unexpected. So those will come out fairly quickly, probably less than a year, six to eight months. But I think. Think the the spigot will open for sort of a lot of regular science within about a year from now and within about two to three years from now. And this it'll be a fire hose, I think. Yeah, in a couple months, they'll probably tell us that they found the signature of another Earth-like planet that is also killing itself through global warming. (laughs) 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 All right, well, Varajan Gorgian, he is a research astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He is a frequent guest on this program and just one of my favorite smart people to listen to. Varajan, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Uh, You're very welcome. Yes, it's a great time and I was so happy to spend this time talking about it. Go check out the pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. They're at nasa.gov forward slash web first images. That's nasa.gov forward slash web first images. And if you haven't subscribed to our Connors newsletter yet, what the heck? What's up? Why haven't you done so? Go to connorsforum.org, connorsforum.org. It just takes a few seconds, and we think it's pretty cool. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you, keep smiling until then, who cares about the clouds when we're together, just sing a song and bring the sunny weather, happy trails to you, till we meet again. trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Till we meet again
goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.